This morning, uh, as we get back into the book of Philippians again, and we are now uh, in a particular text in a morning service where I have entitled this message, Coworkers and Counterfeits. Now, is it, there's something really special, isn't there, when, uh, when, when you come to church and you go to minister and uh, you, you enter into the doors on a regular basis, Sunday after Sunday or, or Wednesday when you come or perhaps a small group or a Bible study, and you go and there are other fellow workers with you. Don't you find that somewhat encouraging? Uh, it, you, you remember back, it hasn't been that long ago, uh, where where you sat maybe in your pajamas on your couch watching a video live stream and how undelightful that was. I mean, absolute blessing, but I remember standing in this small little area all by myself in a sound, in a sound individual preaching, and it just wasn't the same. There was this massive benefit to coming together with other coworkers in Christ and saying, we're in this together. And that's what Paul has been continually reiterating over and over again in the book of Philippians to help us remind us that we're standing firm. What's the goal? Unity. Rejoicing together, side by side, for the sake of the gospel. But along any particular journey, and the blessing it is to have other co-workers, and I could only imagine if we could think of the most close co-workers there was, think of Jesus' life and the, and the ministry that he had with his disciples. I mean, to see what they saw, to be there sitting around with Jesus, enjoying the comfort, enjoying the, 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 the relationship of the Savior of the world. I mean, this, this is a remarkable ability for them to be co-workers with Christ. And yet, at the very same time, it, it blows our minds when we get to the end of the Gospels and one of the 12 who had seen all that the, all the other 11 saw, he betrays Jesus with a kiss. I mean, I, I can't... You could only imagine in the, in the rest of the minds of the other 11 when Jesus would sit around at the Last Supper and say, one of you is going to betray me. That there was a counterfeiter among them. And they had lived so long. They had traveled so many places. They have experienced so many things. I could only imagine, like, who would do such a thing? But there it was. Judas in the midst of genuine co-workers. Well, I think what Paul experienced in the life of his ministry, and unfortunately, what you and I will experience in the life of our ministry, and being united together, and working side by side for the sake of the gospel, that we will at times see people who have chosen to reveal who they truly are. And unfortunately, sometimes those moments can come with the greatest amount of heartache, suffering, difficulty, discouragement, anger. There have been times where I've ministered side by side with people for years, and I mean decades, in the ministry. And all of a sudden, they showed who they truly were. They abandoned the faith, or more rightly spoken, 
revealed that they never had the faith that they claimed they had anyway. And now, what a broken heart it left so many people with. Paul today, in the, in the context of what he's trying to challenge the Philippian believers is, if there's going to be something that disrupts a level of unity, that, that infringes upon the ability to live side by side for the sake of the gospel, is you and I, we have to be able to identify the difference between a genuine co-worker and a counterfeit. Now, the main idea that I, that I think we want to carry with us through the course of this text is this. As Paul is getting this across, to imitate co-workers who understand that their heavenly citizenship matters and that they're willing to stand firm to prove it. See, you won't really know if it comes, if there's no pressure, you won't really recognize whether this person is genuine, but it's most often that when things are, when the pressure is put on and the, and the intensity turns up a little bit, then you begin to understand who they are and where they're going. And that's Paul's desire. He wants us to imitate co-workers like this, uh, and, and unfortunately, Paul realizes that you could invest all kinds of time you could invest all kinds of effort. Moms and dads, you could pour into the life of your children, but you know what you cannot give to them? You cannot make the choice for another person to have a genuine saving faith and a desire to love Jesus Christ. Oh, if there's one thing that's most difficult about investing in discipleship is you can, you can give all kinds of time, all kinds of effort, all kinds of, of, of tears and sorrow and all those things. And you could, you could pour hours and hours and then just have them go, I just don't care. And you have, we have choices at those moments to say, well, what is that going to do? Is that going to discourage me in such a way that I want to abandon this? Was it all lost? Is it, is it really worth it? And I think Paul is saying to them, in the midst of all of this, knowing that some may abandon the faith, some may reveal their true colors. Who we have here today may not be the same people that we have here five years from now. Because some may reveal something that no one else really realizes except for God himself. Now, do I hope that that is not the case? Of course. I think Paul recognized that as he invested in people. First Timothy records Paul writing these words of two people who he describes as shipwrecking their faith. Hymenaeus and Alexander, who later on in the book, he says, he, they have become a poison to the body. See, because true, genuine co-workers will become a source of rejoicing, but those who are counterfeit become a source of sorrow and pain and frustration and poison in the life of the body. Here's one thing we'll say, I think we have to recognize as we start into a text like this, is that you and I don't know what kind of hearts are sitting out in among us. We just simply have to recognize that God in heaven alone reserves the right to understand and know your heart. But know this, if you have grown up in the church, if you have claimed things about Jesus Christ, if you have proclaimed his name, you've worshipped with the body, and yet you don't truly believe, you know and he knows. 
No one else here might know, but he knows. And there should be something of an unsettled spirit that resides on your heart to say, I need to be genuine. I can't continue on this counterfeit path. Well, that is Paul's admonition to us today as we find ourselves in verse, verses 17. Notice we're going to walk through first the command, then the counterfeits, and then the genuine co-workers. So let's start uh, in verse 17. Notice these two particular imperatives that are accompanied in this, in this first verse. Brothers, he's talking to believers, join in imitating me. There's your first command. As he walks us through and we begin to understand the value of this, just remember, he's simply trying to urge you on, believer, to say this. If you're not joining in imitating him as he imitates Christ, there's something wrong. This isn't uh, an imperative that says, hey, consider this as a possibility amongst many options. But, but think about what Paul was able to say. Join in imitating me. I mean, if you were writing an inspired book, do you think you would have said that about you? I can tell you right now, there's no way in the world uh, I would be saying, imitate, and then just, oh, ooh, I feel so good about writing my name in there. And like, no, it's always like to your children, it's like, there's like, Dad, I was like, do better than me. Do better than me. Take all the failures that you've seen in my life and do better there. But Paul, this is a remarkable, humbling statement and yet bold at the same time because Paul could say, every place where you see me imitate Christ, and that's what he's going. Although it's, although it's not stated, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul clearly says that in 1 Corinthians. The implied statement that follows, join in imitating me, is the implication, as I imitate Christ. So that as they looked at Paul, guess what they were doing? In whatever area Paul would see, that they would see Christ in him, they would say, that I'm going to follow. I know it's hard for us sometimes we look at the Apostle Paul's life, and uh, he is such a prized church planter uh, apostle. And we think, could this guy do anything wrong? I mean, I don't even know if, even from an earthly standpoint, I would ever want to compare myself to Paul. It's not just that. Paul's saying, he's saying to his coworkers, he's probably failed in front of them. He probably struggled in front of them. And he's saying, wherever you saw me imitate Christ, imitate that. Because parts, uh, Paul's one heart's desire was to imitate Jesus Christ. It is the call to the Philippian believers, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He's constantly coming back to this, this Christianity, which is a change in heart, but it is a change in mindset. Don't forget that, Christian. It's not just a bunch of change in behavior. It's a change in mind so that then your behavior can be what God wants it to be. It starts in the mind, transforming your mind. And here when he says, join in imitating me, recognize this imperative, this command that he's giving you is, is in the present. He's saying, I want this to go on and on and on and on. 
Yes, till you're dead. Yes, that I think you sometimes we, we recognize that. And anytime we see these kind of imperatives with a present aspect, it's like this indefinite reality. Like, I know you want to say to yourself, yeah, but it's hard. I know. That's why we do it together. So that when we are weak, together we can be made strong. So that as Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, that if if people are wavering and their hope is wavering, that we strengthen one another in the faith. He's saying, join this in in imitating me. And and I think this is so fascinating, likely in in the middle voice in the Greek language, which is you yourself, we ourselves have to do this. It's an ongoing aspect with a personal choice that you and I get to make each and every day of our lives. Yes, this morning you had to wake up and tomorrow you're going to wake up on Monday morning and you're going to have to have this text ringing in your ear. Join in imitating me, Paul says, as I imitate Christ. And when Tuesday morning comes, guess what you need to think? Do it again. Wednesday comes, Week is getting a little longer. Guess what? The truth hasn't changed. Imitate Christ. Join in it. Make that personal choice. It is a responsibility that we have. This is not something that's going to, by the way, happen by accident. Just because you claim Christ. There's a lot of effort. There's a lot of pouring into uh, your, your own interest your own perspective on Christianity. This is why, by the way, as we jump from one text that Pastor Jeremy was in last week, that Paul could say, knowing that we have security in Christ, and yet on the other hand say, but I press on to the mark of the high calling of God. He really desires us not to just get caught up in our positional standing, but to make an effort of our sanctification that looks like so much effort, it almost exhausts us. And I imagine if you've been in any particular occupation or been uh, working hard or in athletics or in some kind of a warlike setting, and all of a sudden that sweat is dripping down your face. I was, I was, I was laughing this morning as I was thinking about this because uh, uh, my Sunday school teacher downstairs he said, he, all of a sudden he just stopped and he, and, he, and he wiped his brow and he said, I'm working hard. <laughs> and you're right. Living the Christian life, proclaiming the pr- Christian principles is hard work. If you are not sweating in a sense as a Christian, maybe you're not running hard enough. Keep moving. Keep imitating him. Keep your eyes fixed. Now he gives his second imperative. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And then he says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Of course, because we recognize that there are going to be those in whom he is now going to mention in just a moment who have now left the faith. They have revealed who they truly are. But he says, keep your eyes fixed on them. Notice this this same nature. Keep keep imitating. Now he's going to add to this. Now you've got more work to do. Now you've got to watch. And now you have to watch those who are walking in particular ways. 
Now notice this. Now catch this as he makes this phrase. Keep your eyes fixed on those who walk. What are you looking for? See, you're not just looking for a body that's breathing. You're looking for something more than that. When he uses the word walk, he's describing behavior. Oh, this gets us in a lot of trouble, by the way, from, from all the Christians of all times who say, uh, and, the, and the criticism that Christianity has often gotten over the years, how many, of, how many of you have ever heard someone say, Christians are so judgmental. Don't be judgy. You're judgy. I hate people who are judgy. Well, guess what? Does he not call us to examine rightly? Does he not call us to make sure that we're examining behavior? Another word the New Testament gives to that is fruit. Oh, I think this is uh, so aghast to people in their mind, all of a sudden who post something on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, and all of a sudden someone shoots them an email and say, can you explain to me such and such a post that happened at 9, 10 p.m. last night, and I'm pretty sure it was on your profile? And they think to themselves, how dare you stalk me? You're a stalker. No, we're not. We, you just put it out for the whole world. We are supposed to watch one another. That means we're going to even examine what you post. That doesn't mean we're, we, we, we don't have a designated pastoral staff team that, are, that is our personal pastoral stalker of all the members. But if it comes out, and by the way, it does come out. So often on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, you get a flavor of who a person really is. And oh, it's so dangerous, Christians, to not be who you are, to be one thing here and one thing out there. It will catch up with you. And this is why he calls the Philippian believers to say, You've got to imitate me as I imitate Christ. Know what your goal is. Know that it's Christ that we're after. That's the model. And now you've got to watch. Oh, but this comes with so big challenges for us when we think about things like Matthew 7, where this is stated, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck? In your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's no log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Can I just say this? That never one point in that particular passage does it ever not call us to not examine it just says make sure that you're doing some pre-work so that you can see clearly, so that you get a right assessment, so that when you finally get to them, it's the real issue and not the issue that you make up. And that's very easy to do. Christian brothers and sisters, we're supposed to watch each other's life. We're supposed to make sure that we're taking the speck out of our lie, or, uh, taking the log out of our own eye before we're taking the speck out of other people's eye. And oh, how many times I have seen that happen. And I just think the imagery is, is fairly comical. You know, like, 
It's almost like you almost get this imagery of some surgeon trying to do heart surgery, and he's got this great beam coming out of his eye, but you want him to do a good job. It's not going to happen. There has to be careful precision in the way that we, the way that we watch people and the, way, and the principles that we hold them to because it is Christ in whom we hold them responsible to being like. Well, I think he challenges these Philippian believers, and I think it begs the question for us. If someone really were to seek to follow after you, how many qualities of Christ would they find to emulate? I mean, moms and dads, let's just be truthfully honest, what we recognize is that our kids see a part of us that many people never see, don't they? That your family, your wife, your close friends see a part of you that you conceal before other people. And why do we do it? Right? Why do we do, why do, we do that dumb thing that all of us tend to do in the midst of our home? Like, why in the world do you do that? And then your phone rings, you're like, hello, how are you? You've done it, haven't you? Of course you have. Because no one answers the phone like, hold on a minute, i got to stop this berating of my child who's stupid. And then puts it on the nice, you know, pause music. Like, hold on. No one does that. We conceal various things because we, we are fearful that people will begin to think something about us. But do you realize that when you imitate Christ and you follow after and you watch those who are imitating Christ and you continue to follow after Christ, guess what? You aren't concerned about what they're seeing because what they're seeing is Christ. You don't have to live in fear of what people-pleasing looks like. Oh, what if they find this out? Yes, we know you're a sinner. Get over yourself. Okay? That means you and I need work, and God's given us each other to help that work happen. We have to watch. Well, what do we watch for? Notice this, because I'm going to follow the pattern that Paul gives, and I'll move rather quickly through these things. What are we supposed to watch for? Well, one, Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. We're supposed to watch where people place their confidence. You can't follow people whose confidence is in the flesh. Paul's saying it can't be in the flesh. It has to be in the spirit of the living God with the mindset of Jesus Christ. What else do you watch for? Well, Philippians 3, 7. You watch what people are willing to sacrifice for. See, Paul says in the very section that we're in, of all things that I had, of all things that I gained, I was willing to count something as a loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. When you begin to watch one another's life as Christians, you ought to examine, what are they willing to sacrifice for? Are they willing to sacrifice to serve? Are they willing to sacrifice to read the Bible? Are they willing to set aside time for other people? Are they willing to go and get together with another couple? Are they willing to spend time rejoicing? Are they willing to make time during their week to come and join a small group? Are they willing to set aside time for Sunday school? How regularly do they come to church? Oh, and by the way, we should be doing and looking at these things. Don't be shocked, in some sense as a Christian, as if you can, you're supposed to live in the body in some incognito fashion. We don't want you to live as if you're not known 
because we want to know you. There's something so special about knowing the very children of God. We watch what they sacrifice. We watch what Philippians 3, 8 to 14, we watch what they pursue after. Paul says, I'm going after this. You remember this. I go after the thing that's most, the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ. Yes. Husbands and wives and moms and dads and Christian friends. When's the last time you said, tell me what, how you're pursuing after Christ and what is hindering you? Philippians 3.12, we watch what people find satisfaction in. Oh, there's things that break my heart so many times as a pastor through the years. To watch people find more enjoyment in the world than they do in the body of Christ. You watch how people choose to think. You begin to start seeing how they formulate their life. The choices they make as a family. What they're willing to sacrifice their family time and dimensions for. Oh yes, there's all kinds of things in the world that people sacrifice so many things. And at the heart of them, in our culture, is so prized in this level of athleticism and arts and all this intellectual components. And so many people pursue after them that they run their family life schedule as if that is at the core. And everything else pays homage to that one thing. Oh, be careful, Christian, because one of the easiest things that we allow Satan to do is to begin to hijack what we live for. And instead of imitating Christ, we just imitate what we want it to be like. And we make a Christ of our own making. Be careful. As he walks us through this, he, he challenges us. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Don't forget the us, by the way. Because Paul is traveling. He's already mentioned Epaphroditus. He's already mentioned the desire to send Timothy. We recognize that Paul had other companions. He is living, he is, he is, in, uh, he is now in a Roman prison. And he's hearing of other people's faith in Caesar's household. He's saying, anything that you see that is Christ-like, follow it. And that means, by the way, just out of encouragement for us. Is that there are things, Christian, that you're doing right now that are Christ-like, many of you. It is noteworthy. It is praiseworthy. Yes, your kids are not seeing all your faults. But they're seeing things. In moments in your life where you're loving and sacrificing and serving and pursuing after. And guess what? Uh, you know, at the moment, at the moment uh, that I think, oh, I think I've just ruined my family. One of my children will say something like, Dad, remember in devotions when we talked to, um, you were listening? I mean, who knew? I mean, between all the breaks, like, stop talking. No, we can't talk about that now. No, we're going to do that later. Okay, let's get this nugget. Somebody caught something. And it wasn't because of me. It was because the Spirit of God loves his children so much 
And he loves every one of you and every one of your children in a way that he's taking his word and he is using it in ways when you least expect it. You can expect that of him because he loves those who bear his image and those who imitate that mindset of Christ. But it comes in the midst of, I can only imagine some very difficult words next in verse 18, when he starts to talk about these counterfeits. He he continues and says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Do note this. Maybe even underline it or circle it. But you, you see Paul's heart, don't you? And now tell you even with tears. And who is he talking about, by the way? Those who have now turned and are enemies of the cross of Christ. As you are in and amidst a a very dark, depraved, sinful culture, do you get so disgusted with the depravity in the world that you fail to have a heart for people and see that they're lost? Paul demonstrates pity. Like my, Paul is saying, my heart is breaking that these people who once claimed they served Christ are now have revealed that they have, didn't want him at all. Let me ask you this, church. As I asked myself this week, as a biblical church and as a church desiring to, to do biblical things, When's the last time that you prayed for people who have been church disciplined? Even with tears. They might even appear as if they are an enemy of the cross of Christ, but that is the challenge, isn't it? Because we so badly want them to not be in a category that we are unsure but we want them as a follower, an imitator of Christ. See, Paul's heart was not like, well, forget you. And nor should ours be. Remember people who maybe have walked away, not just from the church, but from your lives, from wayward children that have all of a sudden grown up in the faith, and and all of a sudden they've chosen in their life to say, you know what, I don't want anything to do with that. It is with tears that I have seen Parents, beg God over and over again, please bring my child to a saving faith. Don't give up. What you can do in the meantime, beyond praying, is imitate Christ. Let them see the glory that Christ brings to your life, the enjoyment, the satisfaction. Well, these individuals, Paul says, as he would tell them even with tears. And we know, now if we'd say, who are they? Well, that's a little bit more difficult question to define. Here's what we do know. Paul's descriptions of them, and these are descriptions of people who, who Paul recognizes counterfeit. Here's the first description. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Let me just tell you this plainly. Any person who's an enemy of the cross of Christ is not a genuine believer. When you all of a sudden garner for yourself the status of enemy, you have crossed 
the other side, if you claim to be on fighting on this side and you abandon this, this team and you went over and said, this really isn't my place, it's actually over here, and you've turned from being thinking, revealing, you were thinking and revealing a child of God to an enemy of the cross of Christ. Oh, I can only imagine why the tears were so great and so painful for Paul. Because these people, it, because these individuals, it's not as if they didn't hear the truth. They, weren't, they were explained the truth. They had seen all kinds of things. And now all of a sudden, in spite of all of that, they said, I don't care. And they have now walked, they're walking presently as enemies of the cross of Christ. Oh, Christian, when you think of the cross of Christ, this is not the setting that you want to have to think about it in. The cross of, of Christ is this glorious picture of suffering and sacrifice. And the fact that if he didn't do it, if the cross of Christ wasn't there, we'd be lost forever. And someone who becomes an enemy of the cross of Christ, here's what they say. I don't care what he did for me. I don't care that he sacrificed himself. I don't care that he took the sins of the whole world. Oh, to be that kind of enemy of the cross of Christ. Those enemies of Christ will be held into account for this perspective. What are they like? How do you identify these enemies of the cross of Christ? Which perhaps, by the way, could be partially the, the Judaizers. If you're looking contextually at this, who they are, well, could be part of them. Could be Gentile individuals who are, who are a precursor to a Gnostic belief both Jew or Gentile, I think it's deliberately brought in the text on purpose to say, if you find anybody who does not follow Jesus Christ they, and they are an enemy of the cross of Christ, here are some things that you're going to see in their life. And then he lists these four things. Their end is destruction. They will hear those words, depart from me, I don't know who you are. That is a reality for people who don't repent and trust in Jesus Christ. Hell is not some fictitious thing that Christians believe so that they can describe heaven as so good. Heaven is so good because hell is literally that bad. Their end is destruction. And this is, by the way, consistent with Paul's expression of eschatology. Their end is destruction. They will one day come to an end of themselves and they will be ushered into eternal damnation. And I would just say, if you're here and you're thinking, I'm a counterfeit. This is your end. But it doesn't have to be. You have time. You have the opportunity. You have the truth of God's word being proclaimed and saying, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is coming. And you can escape the very fires of hell by embracing the kindness of a living Savior who sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh, but you've got to humble yourself. You've got to humble yourself, otherwise you'll, you'll never see it. Their end is destruction. Notice this, their God is their belly. 
This is the idea of Romans, notice Romans 16, if we were to cross-reference this. Here's what Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, avoiding them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. Now you wonder why Paul emphasizes in the previous text that Pastor Jeremy was, says this, let all of us who think this way be mature. Because if you're a naive and immature Christian, then what will you fall prey to? All kinds of winds of doctrine of every kind of sort. But the idolatry, the God is their belly. Literally, if we could describe it this way, they have idolatrous appetites of the flesh. They look at what the world does, and their appetites are more in line and in tune with a fleshly, unbelieving, unregenerate individual who's headed on their way to hell. Their God, notice this, by the way, when it says their God is their belly, that anytime we talk about idolatry, which means we're talking about worship. They have worshipped a God of their own making, and this is how we identify them. Idolatrous appetites. Christian, these fleshly appetites still are waging war in you. What one of us hasn't gone through this week alone, being pulled in some direction by a temptation to some literal fleshly idolatrous appetite that seemed to the flesh like morsels of enjoyment. See, we have to guard ourselves. Because idolatry is far more than just some Old Testament golden statue that people are bowing down to. As Ezekiel 14 says, they have, you know, the prophet says, you've made idols in your heart. And see, that's what we do. We, we love the wrong things, and that's how we identify counterfeits, is we begin to look at their life and say, what are they loving? What are they worshiping? What appetites of the flesh are they continuing, that are continuing to destroy them? If there are all kinds of appetites that are more like the flesh and more like the world, and yet if you come across someone who says, no, I can have all those, but then I can still be a believer. There's something wrong with that assessment. And you've got to be wise enough to identify it. What does that also mean, that, the God, this, that their God is their belly? Well, it also means that they live for present earthly pursuits. They're, they're not for the glory of Christ. And these two phrases are connected together. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame. Very reminiscent of a Romans 1.32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And here's the problem is, even sinful people don't like to live and sin alone. They want to sin in community. It's the exact opposite of what the Christian community should be like. They ought to imitate Christ in community. 
The unbelieving world wants to sin in a collective group of community and say God's okay with whatever we say he's okay with. They glory. What does that mean? It, it describes their enjoyment of what they pursue in their idolatrous appetites. They glory in things that God says is shameful, and even Paul says, I don't even want to talk about the things. They're so shameful, the things of the world, that we don't even want to talk about them. He's saying they're glorying in them, in the very things that God says should be filled with shame. They themselves find absolute enjoyment. And then they even go a step further. Because an unbelieving individual won't just stop at all these behavior things. It reveals that their mind is set on earthly things. They're doing what they're doing because they love what they love, because they believe what they believe. Always follow that pattern and you will see where your heart is at. Their mind is not set on godly things, it's set on earthly things. And that idea of the mind is a very thematic reality to Paul in the book of Philippians, as we have mentioned over and over again. But I think it goes without saying, it means we have to presently fixate our mind not on the things of the earth. You know, here's the problem. I mean, think about your normal diet of what you experience here on earth. What you read, the magazines you pick up, the shows you watch, the things that you begin to digest. The problem with it is that the more that you begin to digest a diet of the world, it seems to have an effect on you. You have to be careful. We all have to be careful. Otherwise, all of a sudden, it starts to dumb down the way we think about what God says is sinful, and we start to redefine things in ways that we never ought to do instead of going back to the Bible. We have to set our minds on earthly things. What does that mean? Well, that means that, practically speaking, you better watch what you watch. You better watch what Netflix thing you binge or whatever chosen programs that you go through. It, it means that you better be careful with what you allow your kids to digest because it will become part of who they are if you're not careful. James says to, in the book of James, he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Oh, the importance of this reality of, of people who are counterfeits. Let me just apply it in this way as well. I have seen, unfortunately, many times, and this specifically gears to, to young, single people who desire to be married. I have watched someone multiple times in different occasions lie about, their, about whether they were a true and genuine believer because they knew that the believing individual in the party would not marry them unless they claimed faith in Christ. Only to find out three to four months later that they came out with it after they had already went down the aisle, said I do, made a covenant, and four months later came to the reality, I married an unbeliever. This happens all the time, by the way. It's dangerous. If we're not able to identify counterfeits, well, what does that mean? Well, if you're 
If you're at that stage in that moment and you're thinking, I want to enjoy someone and God might want me to marry someone or I'm in a relationship, whether that's, whether, whatever circumstance you find yourself in, you ought to be asking yourself, is their appetites earthly? Is their mind set on things of Christ? Do they follow the gospel? Are they one with the world or one with God? I mean, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 6, your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. He says, don't be yoked together with an unbeliever. If you are finding yourself, if, if you are here and you might say to yourself, or if you're listening online and you're thinking, I'm in a situation right now where I'm considering a relationship with a person, possibly marriage, that is with an unbeliever, stop. Stop what you're doing. This is so dangerous for you right now. If you don't have visible evidence that their, that their appetites aren't idolatrous, that they don't glory in their shame, and that their mind isn't, is, is set on earthly things, if you don't have good evidence, stop what you're doing. There's never meaningful relationship that could ever be long-lasting with that. But guess what? Maybe you find yourself in the circumstance you didn't know and you were fooled. Guess what? God is going to be gracious to you and help you live out that imitation of Jesus Christ right in front of their very eyes, up close and personal. And every day, they're going to get, they're going to get confronted with Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ again. And this is how you serve. And this is how you love. Keep working on it. Evaluate well. Moms and dads, help your children. Learn how to evaluate somebody so that they don't end up with somebody who might be a counterfeit. Oh, for so many years as a pastor, I have watched this. And I've heard parents say, well, I just want them to be happy. I just want them to follow their heart. I just want... You want them to follow Christ. This is so important. He gives the command. He warns us about the counterfeits, describes them so that we can identify them. And he says, but now, here's the genuine co-workers. Here you, here's how you identify them. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. How do we know these are genuine co-workers? One, they understand where they're going. Oh, my goodness, this is so good. You and I have a citizenship in heaven. And if you don't sit there this morning and go, thank the Lord it's not here. You, your passport is going to get stamped and you're going to head into the heaven, into the kingdom of God, and, and you're, he's going to say, welcome. But you've got to persevere. You've got to live in a world that's dis, de, depraved and despicable with sin because there's someone who's coming because you recognize in your life, this earth is not my home. I'm just passing through. See, genuine co-workers understand where they're headed. And I think it was so fitting for the, for the Philippian believers living in a Roman colony, knowing that this was the imagery that Paul intends. Here, you're like an, in, a, in a Roman colony away from Rome. And he uses the same mental imagery to say, you are a citizen of heaven waiting for the fulfillment of the kingdom of heaven to come. Don't give up. 
I love this. I love how even as Jesus described this for the, for the disciples, they, he, he allowed them to go out and minister, and they were doing all kinds of things. And he came back in Luke chapter 10, and they came back after, you know, helping all kinds of sick and doing all kinds of miracles. And, and this is what Jesus says to him. He says, nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are sub- subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's not about miraculous power. It's about the miraculous power that allows your name to be written. Think of what it took to get your name in the book of life. You didn't just stumble on the book of life. It was somebody presented it to you because someone died for you. See, that's at the heart of the gospel. You can't come to Christ unless you recognize who God is and you recognize who his son is, who was God, who he came to sacrifice for you. You recognize something about your own sin and you turn and you repent and you follow Christ for the rest of your life. And your name would be written and you'd be a citizen of heaven. Well, they know where they're going. Guess what? They know where their hope is found. Don't you just love this? They await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ. There is hope. There is hope for us who still struggle with sin. There is hope for us as citizens here on earth, living lives, trying to conform ourselves to the image of Christ and to the mind of Christ, that it is not just all over once we die. It's our hope. It's that hope that if you lose it, Oh, the despair that comes along with that. He says, our citizenship is from heaven. We await. And get this, I love, I love what John MacArthur said. We don't wait for an event. We wait for a person. It's the event that brings us into connection with the person. Oh, believer. To look on the kindness of and love of Christ in a resurrected body without sin welcomed into his presence as a genuine citizen I don't think it will get any better than that you will never find that here you will never find that anywhere it is something you possess but something that is coming he says we await it And we await the person who, the Lord, the King of heaven, Jesus Christ, the the Messiah, the one that has been the long-awaited of the Old Testament, who will do what? Who will transform you? Guess what? Because you can't transform you, it, it means that someone else has to transform you. That's why Paul made this deliberate effort to make this plea. It can't be of the flesh because transformation doesn't come by you, it comes by him. And by what power? By the same power, he says, he will transform our lowly body. All right, that's us. We're lowly. He'll transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Think of any ailment, any suffering, any mental exhaustion you've ever faced, and it's going to be gone. Oh. I mean, if, I just want to go now. That's what it should do for us. But as long as we wait, we have to be united over this hope that we have because it's not, 
if he might transform us. No, it's as good as done when the regenerative power of the indwelling Spirit of God seals you when you repent and trust in Jesus Christ. And now it is already yours, but you are yet awaiting for its culmination. Oh, it's going to be good. And it's by the power that enables him. What power? The resurrection power. Oh, you can't believe in a Savior who's just dead. Because what good is that? Because your body needs to be transformed, and it's going to be transformed by the living Christ to a body who is like his. And then he ends with this. In, verse four, in, in chapter 4, verse 1, because our chapters and verses aren't necessarily inspired, the thought continues to state this, something we've been saying over and over again. Therefore, my brothers whom I love, I long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And I would say to you this morning, Christian, stand firm. United for the sake of imitating Christ. Because it is true. When Jesus said to John in John 14 to the disciples, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go and I am preparing a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. That where I am, you can be also. That's what God wants. He wants for us to be united and he so furthered it by giving us the cross of Christ, his very own son, so that we could be united with him once again the way he fully intended with the fellowship that he longs to have with us. Are you going there? And if you're going there, are you excited about it? And if you're going there and you're excited, then while you're waiting, live for Christ. Imitate Christ. Any one of us should be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. Lord, we even know how hard it is to examine our own hearts, knowing that even the residue of the flesh, even now that we are redeemed, that there are moments that the appetites of our own fleshly former self, we must put off and put on Jesus Christ. So we need your help desperately. We need the wisdom to understand how important it is to keep watch on those who walk according to Christ so that we would stand firm for your glory, that our satisfaction alone would be in you as we wait for you to come and take us to be with you. In your name we pray, amen.